Um, welcome to week two in the gym. Uh, and if you are, um, if you were, if you were here bright and early, you probably grabbed a, a um, prime spot. However, sometimes when people are coming in, especially with little ones, as the service is beginning, um, we just need to be kind of aware, cognizant as much as possible to make sure we're, we're finding room for everyone. Um, there's a lot of you here this morning, which is an awesome and wonderful and beautiful thing, uh, but we just want to make sure that we can fit everyone. And I want to say a little hello to anyone that's in the uh, community room. Uh, hopefully you can hear me okay, and uh, we are looking forward to um, kind of being in two uh, different locations in our church building so that we can accommodate uh, people with different needs and different, uh, um, you know, if they have kids or whatever want to be in there or someone who just doesn't like the crowded space that is an option the music doesn't sound super great over there but um the speaking is pretty clear so um if that if you're kind of like looking around and getting claustrophobic that is a possibility and an option (laughs) so uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Justin Sitzma. I'm on the pastoral staff here at Courtright. Uh, Pastor Alex is away today. He is preaching at St. Andrew's Fergus, uh, and uh, this is his last Sunday there as the interim moderator. It's been a long process for about uh, the past year and a half, and uh, they are having their new minister, Peter Bush. He's starting this uh, October 1st, and so Alex is very excited. He's, he's uh, sending off with that email. He says, praise the Lord. <laughs> that was his uh, his email to me that he wanted to just send that message on his behalf and to uh, thank you for his uh, for uh, for uh, for your patience in this process. Um, yeah. So when I was 18 years old, um, I was at a high school and I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. Fully. I had some ideas. I had some thoughts. I think at that point, I still kind of wanted to be a rock star. That was like a, a little bit of my vision. But I had some. I had some backup plans. You know. Um, still time. <laughs> um, so I took the year off, and I and I took a job at a car wash here in town. Some of you might know it, Valet Car Wash. Anyone? Any frequenters at Valet? few of you. Um, and so it was like, it was not a great job. Like I, I just, um, it was a minimum wage kind of deal. Um, but considering I didn't really have any real financial responsibilities because I was living at home with my parents, um, I, I didn't really worry about it too, too much at that point. Thanks mom and dad. Um, now, my specific job at this car wash was that I had the, the privilege, the, the duty to guide the people onto the wash. Um, I, and, and so that was, if you've ever been there, you know, it's not one of those car washes where you just sit, you know, sit and park and, and all the machinery moves. It was on a track to maximize the amount of people. Cause I think like on certain sunny Saturdays, they would get like 500, 600 cars through that car wash in, in, in one day. So, um, my job was to make sure, you know, I, I would do this. And then if they were, you know, I would go like that. No, 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 you got to go that way. And then they would like overcorrect like crazy. And, and it was, it was just a bad scene, but usually it worked out pretty well. Um, my job was nothing special here. It was, there was nothing special about what I did. However, the customers really seemed to like me. Maybe it was my, my sunny disposition. Maybe it was my helpful nature. They tipped me a lot, actually. They, and, and we kind of, there was this rule that, that we were supposed to share our tips if we ever got tips. Um, and they would specifically like hand me like a couple tunies and be like, um, don't give it to the rest. I don't like them. I only like you. <laughs> 
I think I shared with the rest of the most of the time. I'll just, a little confession moments. I, I think I might have taken it for myself every now and then. Um, I've repented, I promise. So, all these years later, without knowing what I was doing, I think in some sense, I was living out my calling as an image bearer. Someone who is made in the image of God. It was really, it was a really simple job and maybe that job wasn't of any real cosmic significance in the grand scheme of things, but I was image bearing nonetheless, even through the simple act of caring for customers well. And though I knew that I was probably uh, destined for more than being a car wash attendant, um, my calling all these years later has not changed. In fact, if you are here and you have a pulse, everyone maybe do a little test, make sure. Um, your calling hasn't changed either. If you, are a, if you are here and you are a follower of Jesus, in fact, your calling is even a little bit more specialized. And we're going to be reading what this calling is when we look at Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2, which is where we've been hanging out the past month. And we are going to continue to hang out because these are foundational, rich passages that have so much to tell us about God and our relationship with God. So we're going to read um, a fairly large section, about 15, 16 verses, and I want you to especially attune your ears to some of the language surrounding the image of God and us being made in God's image. So this is Genesis 1 um, toward the end, 126 to 30, and then Genesis 2, uh, four, uh, verse 4 to 15. Then God said... Let us make mankind, humankind, in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with the seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. Genesis 2 verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth where they were created, where when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not sent rain onto the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he had put the man that he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. 
in the middle of the garden where the uh, in the middle of the garden where the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil a river watering the garden flowed from eden from there it was separated into four headwaters the name of the first is the pishon it winds through the entire land of the havilah where there is gold the gold of that land is good there's aromatic resin and, and onyx there also the name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of the Azur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. This is the word of the Lord. Man, there's a lot here. There's just just a few observations. Okay, maybe maybe more than a few observations, if you can hang with me. Um, it's really important to note that we haven't even gotten into talking about sin yet. Like, we've gone through so many wonderful, beautiful topics here, and that's coming in a couple weeks. And so uh, let's just kind of savor the beauty of, of what's already happening here, just in this moment, that this is this beautiful, untarnished world. The world we're describing is a world teeming with life, a world full of possibilities and potential. And yet, this is interesting, even in this world, there is work. And the work is good. Now, this might be a wake-up call for some of you that dream of escaping your nine-to-five and that in the new creation, when all is redeemed and perfect, that you're going to sit around sunbathing and eating grapes. Uh, I don't know if that was, maybe not grapes, maybe it's something else. But um, if that is your vision for what is going to, what it's going to be like in the new creation, this might be a little bit of a wake-up call for you. God purposed his creation to work from the very beginning. And what's more, us being made in the image of God is intrinsically connected to our work. We work because God works. Check this out. It says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And then there's this little connector phrase. He says, so that they may rule. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. God calls them to be rulers. God calls us to be rulers over created beings. God calls them and God calls us to fill the earth and subdue creation. Now, these words, those four, those three phrases, rulers, filling the earth, subduing the earth, these phrases have been used and abused over the years. And I want to take a redeemed look at what this looks like. I want to explore these words because there have been, in fact, people that have criticized the creation account here um, and have said that the, the, the whole entire reason why we have such pollution and just the ravaging of our environment is because of Genesis 1. That's what people say. There was a guy in... Um, the 60s. His name was Lynn White. He was a historian and he, and he wrote an infamous article dealing with this exact issue where he points to Genesis 1 and the creation story. And he says, this is the reason why, why the, the earth is, is you know, going to hell in a handbasket. Because we see ourselves as special from the rest of creation and that the rest of creation is inferior. So we can treat the world with however we please. We can do whatever we'd like with it. That is what um, maybe some Christians have believed, and maybe that is what he presumed all Christians believe. And I just want to say this morning that that interpretation has done harm to not just the physical earth, but to humans as well. 
When we truly examine what is happening in this early part of Genesis, it should instill in us, rather than a sense of entitlement, it should instill in us a deep sense and a profound sense of responsibility. On a surface level, though, it does kind of sound like we have a license to do whatever we want. But as usual with God's word, when we dig a little deeper, when we do the hard work, we see that there is so much more going on. So first off, I want to deal with this word rule. Rule. What kind of person is a person who rules? Kings. Kings, queens, they rule. This is, this is royal language. God has placed us over creation as regent kings and regent queens, as stewards over creation. If you could imagine the queen calling you up and saying, hey, it's your turn to shine. You're going to take over. I'm, I'm still alive. I'm going to be kicking around, but surprisingly, um, but she is going to entrust you with all the responsibilities, even though she is still technically queen. And she's going to say, okay, you are now my regent king. You are now my regent queen. You are overseeing what I am responsible for. That's kind of what God does for us. We are stewards over creation. And again, this is intrinsically connected to us being made in the image of God. In the ancient Near East, this is really interesting, a king. So when you looked at the, the nations, Babylon, these other nations, um, a king was seen as an image of God. They ruled on God's behalf, usually in a very negative way. They, they were tyrants. They, were, they, would, they would put people under their subject and rule, and it was not good. It did not lead to, lead to flourishing or life in any way, shape, or form. They ruled on, on their God's behalf above everyone else. The kings, they were this embodiment of the gods. They were this physical representation of the gods. But here... The difference, and this is the beauty of what God calls us to in this moment. God says to every single human that you bear my image. This is revolutionary. We were reminded of this in our call to worship in Psalm 8, where Allison read earlier. The psalmist is reminded that we were made just a little lower than the heavenly beings, than the angels. And that the task that we are given is to rule over creation. And then he calls those image bearers and those rulers to fill the earth. That's the second big piece there. And I think that we have maybe misinterpreted this one at times as well. Now, there's the practical consideration, if you go back to the, the dawn of, of humanity, that the earth, practically speaking, needed to be filled, that there, um, they, need, they needed to make some babies. Um, but I, will, I would put to you this morning that this call is a call for us today, even with a population of 7 billion people on the earth, because the call is larger than just filling the earth with babies. In fact, in the following verses, it doesn't even talk about babies. It talks about mammals and fish and plants and trees. Fill the earth with life. Fill the earth with life. Yeah, that might include babies, but it might not. <laughs> we can be image bearers equal in value and worth when we produce life of any kind, not 
just human life. I say that to our single friends. I say that to our friends that cannot have children. I say that to our friends that can no longer have children. And even to those who have chosen to not have children, that you can fill the earth all the same and fulfill your image bearing calling. Your value as an image bearer is not contingent on whether or not you've had a baby. It is so much deeper than that. It is about bringing our will and our intention into something to help life flourish. And if I could remind us, um, our Lord and Savior Jesus, um, he was single, had no kids. So um, if, we, if we were to make this some kind of litmus test uh, of, of, you know, what is an image bearer, um, Jesus failed. And so um, we don't believe that, right? So Jesus is the perfect embodiment of the image of God. And so, uh, but that's a, that's a little um, spoiler. So I'll, I'll save that for the later on. <laughs> and we are called as image bearers and rulers to not only fill the earth, but to subdue it. And this is where things get a little dicey. This is a little bit more of a controversial word. We like the idea of being royalty, like I'm a king, I'm a queen, this is pretty awesome. We like the idea of producing life, or maybe some of us, we like the idea of making babies. You know, and all the stuff that goes along with that. <laughs> However, this word subdue, it can be confusing in its meaning. Its most common usage when you read through the scriptures is to describe a people or a city being subdued or destroyed or brought under bondage or slavery. There is a violent connotation to this word. But is it possible that based on the context here, that there is another meaning? I think the answer is yes. So just roll with me for a second. Just see where we go. Consider with me for a moment that God has created this world, right? He's brought order out of chaos. He's brought life. He's brought trees and plants and creatures. And he has given humans this royal task of caring for his creation. But he calls us to bring even more life into the earth. He gives us a role. He says, I want you to cultivate more life, to plant more plants, more trees, more animals, more babies. And to do this, it requires us to subdue the earth. What do I mean by this? I want you to picture in your mind's eye an uninhabited wild land. It's uncultivated. There are no paths. There are no cleared fields. In my head, I kind of picture a jungle. Who here has been to uh, some kind of jungle, whether in like the Americas or uh, Africa or somewhere in Asia? So a handful of you have, have been to a jungle before. Um, I have been to uh, the Amazon jungle in Peru, and it's remarkable, and it's wild, and it's untamed. And um, to cultivate that field, um, I mean, and when, whenever we would go into the jungle, they would carry what with them a machete and you're chopping down those those leaves so that you're not you know getting uh, some poisonous snake or spider on you or whatever i kind of picture that jungle where we're creating paths with that machete trying to clear out an area for to build a dwelling of some kind in fact one of the definitions um, from the original language of the hebrew of the one of the definitions of subdue is the phrase to make a path Interesting. So some of you that have been to the jungle, 
you'll know that um, this is a really challenging task, that when you are chopping through the field, you are tearing down trees because you want to build new trees that bear new kinds of fruit. You want to build a garden. And when you do this, there is a violence to it uh, in the sense that you are, you know, chopping down trees, chopping down leaves, uprooting plants in favor of new plants. Uh, you are burning the old stuff. There is something about what is happening there where we are subduing the earth. We are not God. We cannot create something from nothing. However, to live out our, uh, our, our image-bearing nature, we can subdue what God has created. Subduing the earth means to harness the potential and the power that is within it for the flourishing of the earth. You know, when we create a garden, just as one tangible example, when we create a garden, we subdue the earth because that garden would not have existed if it's not going to build itself on its own. You know, Courtright, we had a garden just outside, uh, just outside here this summer, and it was a wonderful blessing to the community, to uh, to the onside families, and to even some of us here at Courtright. And that garden would not have magically just appeared. There would not have been magically zucchinis and kale and spinach and beets and was was there anything else Brian did I miss was it, was, was it? cabbage tomatoes those things would not have magically spread it out of the ground had had there not been some subduing of the earth it needed to be cared for and cultivated subduing is to exert one's authority over something and this is a far cry from that surface level picture of taking the earth and doing whatever the heck you want with it our entire calling as christians is to be royal stewards aiding in the flourishing of the earth and its inhabitants if you're here and you're a follower of jesus you are called to the act of creation care that we have been stewarded that we have been stewarded this earth and that there is a weight and a responsibility in this. And this isn't about trendy political theology or ideology. This is Genesis 1. This is page 1 of the Bible. On the issue of climate change, I'm going to stay in my lane and stick with what I know, which is the Bible, not science. And right here on page 1, we have a clear call, a mandate as image bearers to bring forth life and not death or destruction. So I wanted to spend time parsing out those little phrases there because I think they're really important that we understand them properly and how it relates to our, our vocation as Christians and, and our understanding of what it means to be an image bearer. It's not peripheral. This is quite central, actually. Just a couple more quick things out of Genesis 2. There's this complementary account of creation that happens in Genesis 2 um, where it describes God planting the gardens and creating trees that are not only good for food, but they're actually pretty nice to look at. So in, um, this is Genesis 2, chapter uh, verse 9. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Now, I don't know about you, um, but I'm glad that God didn't create everything just to be utility and function. That he created some things simply because it's beautiful and he enjoys them and thinks they're beautiful and wants us to enjoy them and think they're beautiful as well. 
And not only do we get to enjoy beautiful things, but we get to be uh, partakers in creating beautiful things. Everything from art to music to buildings to poetry to families to church communities to um, someone who is, uh, I'm thinking of, you know, some doctors that we have in this room that have been able to restore and heal someone. I'm thinking of, of surgeons who are able to patch up someone and make them, uh, make them healthy again. This is uh, a beautiful and wonderful thing. God is interested in beauty. As he does in Genesis 1, God creates a man, Adam or Adam, which means man. It also comes from the, the other word in Hebrew, Adama, which, is, which means earth. And God breathes life into Adam, another signifier of our image-bearing nature. It's sort of this early moment of grace where God didn't have to create humans as image-bearers. God had no, there was no mandate that he must do that, but he chose to, in his love and his goodness and his grace, do just that. And going full circle to where we started in verse 15 of chapter 2, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. So God puts the man in the garden to care for the garden, to till it, to cultivate it, to help the garden to flourish and bear fruit and produce and multiply. And there's something really awesome and beautiful about this word work, because when you uh, look up its meaning, it not only means kind of the natural meaning of what we think it does, it means so much more. It actually means to serve and to perform acts of worship. Pretty cool. So from the page, from page one and page two of the Bible, our image bearing call is to work (laughs) and to work is to worship and to worship is to work. There is no difference between those two things. So I want to distill this and bring this to even a little bit more of a ground level um, because this is a high calling and a high calling often starts at kind of like a, a high level place. And I want to bring it down to earth a little bit where I'm looking out at this crowd and we have people from all ages and stages of life. We have people that are retired. We have people that are in school. We have young families. We have people that are, um, you know, empty nesters. We have people that are still working, people that are not working currently at all. And the reality is our vocation, regardless of the age and stage of life, does not change. So Andy Crouch, uh, he's a, uh, he's the executive editor of Christianity Today, and he's written many wonderful books that I know that some of the uh, session have read, and uh, Allison and her 242 group have read uh, one, of, one of his books as well. Um, he puts it this way, and I really like this, so I'm just borrowing it from him. I don't think he'd mind. Um, he says that we have three callings, three callings. The first one is that we are to bear the image of God. We are to bear the image of God. This is the role that we've already talked about of reflecting the creator into the world and reflecting the world back to its creator, breathing the breath of life back to God that he has given into us. And we do this for the purposes of creating and cultivating and helping the world to flourish, both the physical world and its inhabitants. This is the task, whether you are a Christian, whether you are not at all a Christian, this is every human's task. But number two is where we get a little bit more specific when we think about the calling of a Christian, a Christ follower. We are to restore the image. We are to restore the image of God. 
This is the ministry of reconciliation that Jesus is chiefly responsible for, but that we are called to participate in. In 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul reminds us that we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So we are to reconcile and restore the original intent of the image. That is the job of people who follow Jesus. To be a Christian is to be a part of the mission to restore this image. Our attention must be focused on where the image has been broken and lost. This is about both a kind of a personal goal where we can recognize within us that there's a piece of us where the image has been broken and lost. And there's a part of the world where the image has been broken and lost. Typically, it'll show up in the areas of idolatry and injustice. Those two things, idolatry and injustice. Idolatry are those little G gods that we look to, to find comfort in our lives as a source of meaning. And injustice is often the fruit of following those little G gods. For instance, if you're here and you were to make an idol out of money, we stop at nothing to acquire wealth with reckless disregard to how that affects me personally, my own heart, my own soul, to how that affects the people around me, to how that affects the people across the world. When we live in this way, this, injust- this is injustice because it adds to the destruction and the exploitation of the world rather than the flourishing of the world. Where the image has been broken... We are called to participate with Jesus in restoring it, to bringing rights to those things. Lastly, our last calling, and this one is, um, it's important, but it's actually not the most important. And it's this, that we have a contingent calling. This calling is totally dependent on your stage of life. This calling, those two callings, if you're a follower of Jesus, those are your forever callings. This calling, though, might change. It's dependent on our stage of life. For me right now, I am a father to Iris. I am a husband to Lindsay. I'm on the pastoral staff at Courtright Church. And at any moment, God forbid, those things could change. At any given moment. And again, I hope not. But that is the reality of our world. So the first two callings can broadly be said to be about God's call for us, how, call for how we aid in the flourishing of the world. But our contingent calling is kind of the how. It's the how. So for me, the questions that I need to ask myself and your questions will be different. How am I bearing and restoring the image of God as a father, as a husband, as a pastor? How am I bearing and restoring the image of God as a citizen of Guelph, as someone who lives on a particular street in a particular neighborhood? How am I bearing and restoring the image of God among my friends, among my family, among, you know, even just public places such as the cashier at the grocery store? Just simple, small things as well as the big, big things. You know, recently um, I've started teaching uh, music a couple nights a week at CMA Music over on Laird Road in the South End. And um, the question I've been asking in this role is, how am I bearing and restoring the image of God as I do this? As I'm teaching a four-year-old how to play the snare drum. You know, something silly and simple that we, you know, it's just like a, a half an hour of just high energy like I've never experienced before in my life. <laughs> But I had a little win. I had a win. And, 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 I, and I thought about this a little bit. 
there's two actually. The first one, so this little four-year-old kid that I'm teaching snare drum to, um, the first week he came in, he was terrified. He was like, who's this guy with this beard? And he's going to teach me how to play the drums. And, and it's weird, you know? Um, but by the end of the lesson, he was crying because he didn't want to leave. And, and then the next week I came out and I walked out and he was like jumping up and down. He's like, yeah, Justin's here! You know, and then, and then he, again, he cried when we had to leave. And I was like, okay, I'm doing something right. Good, good. Uh, but there was an even maybe more profound moment with, uh, there was a girl I was teaching drums to. She's about 12 years old. And we were working on a song and it was fairly difficult. And, and she was trying over and over and over again and she wasn't getting it. All of a sudden, she locked in. And she played for, you know, 30 seconds. She stopped and she had this like astonished look on her face. And she's like, I didn't know I could do that. And I'm like, I knew you could. And, and, and like there, there's something beautiful and good about um, showing someone uh, how to do something and seeing them do it. And it's like all of a sudden there's vibrancy and life and flourishing. In some small way, that is adding beauty and flourishing to the world. So the question is, what does that look like for you? Think about the roles that you play currently, whether it's a, a job that you get a paycheck for or, or something that you do in your, uh, in your volunteer time. Maybe it's something that you, uh, you know, take part in here at the church or somewhere else in the community. Maybe you're a stay-at-home parent, a father, a mother, a student, a sister, a brother, a son, a daughter, a husband, a wife, an accountant, a government official, a farmer, a manufacturer, a tradesperson. Whatever you do, the question is, how are you bearing and restoring God's image in what you do? Being in vocational ministry, this is something that I think people see incorrectly, that being in vocational ministry or missions, or kind of, we look at those two things as saying, well, those people are kind of really bearing God's image in a profound way. And I would say that is absolutely categorically untrue. You can do it just as well wherever God has placed you. My, my job is kind of to be your cheerleader, to, to, to support you as you guys do that. Just as one example, I want us to consider maybe the work of someone like a carpenter. Anyone, anyone a carpenter here? Or maybe has, you know, my, yeah, my dad is, yeah. <laughs> um, and and I'm, I'm sure there's many of you who have worked with wood in some capacity. So there's two pieces of the puzzle here. On a practical level, the carpenter, they are taking materials, hopefully responsibly and sustainably, from, uh, from the earth, trees. And they're taking um, material from within the earth as well. You know, things like metal for nails and screws. And they are creating something useful and good and often quite beautiful. By the very nature of what a carpenter does, they are bearing the image of God. So think about that, what that might look like for your own context. Now, if you are like, well, I, you know, don't really do anything of that nature. I don't work with materials. Maybe I'm a computer programmer. Same kind of idea. In fact, you have the beautiful opportunity to create your own stuff from scratch, basically, with the computer in front of you. It's good and beautiful and wonderful. But secondarily, the carpenter can bear and restore the image of God by having integrity in their work ethic by charging fair prices for their work, by treating their workers under them or above them as, 
as fellow image bearers, by treating their clients as fellow image bearers, by being responsible with the type of woods that are used. You know, I, as, a, as a guitar aficionado, I sometimes lament that things like rosewood are becoming much more rare. But I'm like, you know what? If they need to like build up the reserves of rosewood in the jungle or whatever, like that needs to happen. Even though I want a rosewood, you know, neck on my guitar. It's, I'm not going to be selfish like that because we need to be responsible with what God has given us. This sort of thing goes for any job. So what does it look like for you? Where can you add to the flourishing of the people around you through your vocation? I want you to take some time and reflect on that this week. But it doesn't matter whether you're getting a paycheck from something. It doesn't matter whether you are retired or whether you are in school. You have a role and a responsibility and a vocation under Genesis 1 and God's call to us there. Sometimes it's just a simple reorientation of what, the way we're thinking about our job. That some of you have been in a job for so long or a, a vocation for so long that you've stopped seeing it as meaningful and important. And I would put to you uh, that, that a simple reorientation would help us to see our work in a different light. It would help us to bear and restore God's image in a better way. So how can, re, how can we reorient our work and see it not as just work, but see it as worship as well? The challenge with all this, as we prayed earlier in our prayer of confession, we so often fail to live up to this ideal, don't we? I know that I do. I can look at my role as a father and as a husband, as a pastor, and I can see all of the times I've failed. I can see all the times. In fact, sometimes I I feel plagued about that. I look at where I have failed to uh, image, uh, bear God's image and restore God's image. This is nothing new for me, and it's nothing new in the history of the world. God's people, starting in, Genesis, in, in the garden, failed to bear the image of God the way God desired. God would call his people to flourish, and they would destroy. God called his people to care for the poor, the oppressed, the, the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, and they would instead choose to oppress them. God would call for his people to be set apart from the nations. He told the kings, you know, not to acquire uh, lots of armies and wealth and women. And instead, they did just that and became just like the nations. In that same way, God, in the same way that God's people failed to live out the Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 calling, we too have failed. We have hurt and exploited people. We have partaken in destruction rather than flourishing. We have spoken hurtful words rather than life-giving words. We have done things purely for our own gain rather than for the worship of God and for the aiding of the flourishing of humanity. And Jesus, thank God, steps into this gap and he invites us into something unique and beautiful and wonderful and it's called the kingdom of God. The kingdom that is to be a restoration of all that was lost in the garden. In fact, this is a return to God's vision in the garden. Jesus perfectly bears God's image because he is both fully human and fully divine. Where we fail to live out our call, Jesus succeeds. 
And he invites us into this new reality where we can pray to God in full confidence, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus began this work at the start of his ministry and it culminated at the cross and the resurrection. That through these acts, Jesus begins the work of restoring the image and wants us to join in. When we follow Jesus, we are recipients of that reconciliation. And so what are we going to do with what we've received? Ephesians 2 it reminds us when we were dead in our transgressions, when we were dead in our sin, Jesus brought forth life. Jesus is in the business of doing exactly what God called humanity to do in the garden, to bring things to life. And he invites us into that good work. And the culmination at the end of all of this is really a return to the garden. When you go to the very last pages of the scriptures, this is exactly what we see. That as we join in the work of restoration and reconciliation, that we in some way, in some sense, bring heaven to earth, God's space into our space. That if the garden was our ideal, where we perfectly bear and reflect God's image, where our work is worship and our worship is work, that's what we must return to in the new creation. This is what we see in Revelation chapter 22. It says these words, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, full, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and down the middle of, of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, everybody, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be a curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. So the scriptures, they start with a garden teeming with life. And yet the scriptures end in a garden city, flowing with living water, trees yielding fruit, the nations restored and healed back to the original vision. No more sin, no more pain, abundant life. And flourishing. And so this is a question I ask in closing. How will you, in your stage of life, in your vocation, whatever it is that you are called to do and called to be, how will you bear and restore the image of God? And how will you help the world to aid in its flourishing? I want you to reflect and think on that this week. Maybe just take a moment now and do that. If we just close our eyes for a second and just listen and hear what God might be saying to us. God, maybe for many of us, We've lost our, our vision. We've lost our, our, uh, our, this ideal of, of our vocation that we have in you that is mandated from the earliest days of humanity. God, I pray that you would restore and renew that vision in us, that you would enable us 
for the sake of, of the flourishing of our families, of our neighborhoods, of our city, of the world, that you would allow us to just see this in a new and fresh way, that you would help us to bring forth life in some profound way, that our lives would be marked as followers of Jesus who bring life and not death, who bring, uh, who bring flourishing and not destruction. Would you help us by your Holy Spirit to live that out? In your name.